0: Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order.
1: Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Hey everybody, welcome back to Everyday Acupuncture Podcast. I'm really pleased today to be sitting down with Andrew Schleibach. Andrew, wow. In addition to being an accomplished mountaineer, and he's the past president and creative director of Split Diamond Media, which was an early pioneer in the digital publishing and internet services world. Andrew is also the co-founder and president of the Acupuncture Relief Project, which is going to be the subject of our show today. This project not only serves rural villages in Nepal, but it's also a way of proving the use of rural medicine. It's a research project in addition to all of this. He teaches at OCOM Acupuncture School in Portland and he maintains a private practice. Andrew, so happy to have you here on Everyday Acupuncture.
2: Great, thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, so I'm I'm a little curious, your background, you're an army veteran, you're a mountaineer, past creative director of a media company, how does all that lead to becoming an acupuncturist?
2: Well, if you get old enough, you can. You have a long backstory, I guess. But uh, uh, mostly, I did a lot of travel through Asia. I'd, I've been a mountaineer since I was quite young. I, I started climbing when I was uh, about 14 years old. And that climbing experience eventually led me to the Himalayas, where I worked at the uh, Himalayan Mountain Institute in Darjeeling, India, for a period of time as a as a mountaineering instructor. And my my experience in Nepal and and Tibet uh, sort of inspired me that that the mountaineers were kind of missing the point to some extent of. Visiting a country to, you know, climb the mountains, but not really understanding the culture of the of the country. And I I just found that I was just a little bit more interested in, in spending time in uh, the mountain regions with with uh, the people of the mountains than I was in climbing anymore. And so I I started, you know, thinking of ways that I could perpetuate that interest. And so I went back to grad school to start this project.
1: So you went back to school with this project in mind it wasn't that you decided i'm going to do acupuncture you saw the as leading you to this deeper relationship with
2: the people around the mountain pretty much yeah i mean i'd always been interested in acupuncture but i'm really sort of interested in all medicine i've, I've worked in you know search and rescue since i was quite young and and uh when during my tenure at uh at the Himalayan Mountain Institute, I I mostly worked with the uh the physicians that that supported expeditions. And so I, I've been I've been interested in a lot of different forms of medicine, but specifically acupuncture, because I could see the relevance to the the nature of acupuncture working in in very rural and underdeveloped areas.
1: Tell us a little bit about how acupuncture is used in those settings? You know, here in the West, it's it's often some kind of a comfy clinic. People often come in with, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, a lot of first world problems. It sounds like you're in a situation where it's a very different milieu. How does acupuncture work there? What kind of thing, what kind of cases do you see? and And how do you see acupuncture serving that population?
2: Well, First off, we don't really characterize our clinic as a, you know, quote unquote, acupuncture clinic, we we just think of it as a, a an integrated rural health center, mm-hmm. uh, a place at which we use acupuncture, but it, it's not our, our primary focus. It's, it's the only clinic in this rural area. So we have a, we have a catchment area of about 120,000 people, and we're the only clinic. Uh, so this is really the only access for people to come in and get, uh, uh, adequate, uh, medical advice. And so diagnostics is probably the primary reason that we're out there is, is that, uh, we need to be able to recognize, you know, different pathology and, and different problems. And, and then we work down sort of from saying what is best, like what, what medicine should be used in this case. And so we don't start with, we're going to do acupuncture, we start with what, what do we need to address this? And then we work down to saying acupuncture is what is best for this. And and not only that, we have acupuncture. And so uh, then we can use acupuncture uh, for what we're doing there. But the as far as what we see, I, I would say that any primary clinic, the majority of what you're going to see is orthopedic pain. Uh, most everybody that lives out in the villages are uh, subsistence farmers, and, and so they, they work really hard all their lives. Young women start carrying extremely heavy loads with their heads uh, when they're about 12 years old. And so we see a lot of uh, uh, advanced uh, bone degeneration in the, in the neck at quite a young age. And of course, acupuncture is really great at use for these things. Uh, So we we treat lots of pain complaints, but that, that I would say that's about 70, 70% of what we see. And, uh, and then we see a lot of upper respiratory disease because uh, people still cook with wood, wood fires in their homes and their homes aren't well ventilated. So we see a lot of COPD We see a lot of GI issues, both infectious, parasitic, uh, and, uh, a lot of gastritis. And then there's sort of the top 10%, you know, like just the tip of the iceberg, which is everything that you've ever read about in a textbook or ever imagined that you would ever see in, in medicine. Uh, and so we see a lot of tuberculosis. I'd say every year when I'm in Nepal, I, I probably diagnose a dozen cases of tuberculosis. We see unmanaged diabetes. We see uh, typhoid fever. We see a lot of febrile strokes, which we don't see in the West that much. So, uh, you know, strokes that have happened because of extremely high fever due to febrile disease. Um yeah. And I've, you know, I, I've seen cases of all kinds of wild stuff that, you know, like when I've talked with other physicians about it, they're like, yeah, that's, you're never going to see a case of that. You know, it, that, that that's a one time in your career case. And I'm going like, yeah, I've seen three, I've seen three. Well, you're working in a more extreme
1: environment and it sounds like anyone could come in. How do you, so you see a fair amount of infectious disease and it, it you're not doing just acupuncture you're you're doing an integrative approach so you have antibiotics there as well you have other western pharmaceuticals or do you use herbs what do you, how do you guys treat the the febrile diseases
2: we we use you know a holistic approach in the true sense of the word not just in, in how we look at the body but how we look at medicine as a whole so I'm not a big fan of how in the West uh, medicine is so compartmentalized into specialties of physical therapy and, and uh, acupuncture and chiropractic. And volunteers that come and work at my clinic, I just say that that is sort of a first world you know luxury that we have. And here you just get to be a doctor. Uh, there's no there's no complementary alternative care medicine. There's no Western medicine. There's just medicine. There's just what will benefit your patient. And so, what we want to be thinking about is everything that's available. So, yes, we we have we're authorized to use forty-eight uh, different uh, pharmaceutical drugs that the government provides to us. So, we have a handful of antibiotics, and we you know we have some pharmaceutical pain medication. Uh, and and a few other specialty drugs that we can use, so we use those as wisely as we can. We use local herbs. Uh, we partner with some Ayurvedic uh, physicians that are in in Nepal, and we import some Chinese herbs, uh, which we use. And then uh, we have acupuncture and anything else we can put our hands on. We 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 also have a large referral network with lots of different hospitals and other facilities outside of our region that we refer to and, and uh, consult with uh, I have very very good access in Nepal to being able to talk with other physicians or visit other facilities and help advocate for care for patients that that need that so you guys are really integrated into the the larger
1: healthcare system there
2: that's our goal anyway I, you know because you know in the developing world you you think that in the West we have problems with a for profit healthcare system, but in, in Nepal it's it's basically you have the money to pay for care, which you have to pay up front, or you don't get care. Uh, and so you know, so basically, you know, like in, in a country like Nepal, the only economy that's in Nepal is in the capital in Kathmandu. So Kathmandu is a city like all other cities. It has an economy, it has banks, it has factories, uh, You know, people have jobs, there's money in circulation there, but all you have to do is go outside the valley and suddenly there is no economy. People are just subsistence farmers and they're probably surviving on less than 200 US dollars uh, uh, of actual currency uh, a year. And so when it comes to healthcare and them accessing care like in the capital, that is extremely hard to come by. Uh, because, you know, their income or their money that they they have to spend on that is is, is very little and compared to somebody that lives in the capital would have to spend on that. And so, yes, we're plugged into the network, but still we can have difficulties actually accessing the care that is necessary. And And sometimes we have to, you know, coordinate with several different hospitals to get a patient taken care of. Sounds cumbersome. Yeah,
1: tell us a bit about this research arm of what you're doing.
2: Well, we've always been interested in in research, and and uh, so we, we we've done some minor projects with with the government of Nepal to you know to show them what it is that we're we're doing. And every every volunteer that comes and works with our our project is tasked with doing at least one clinical case study for us and. We've compiled quite a compendium of, of over a uh, 100 case studies that we use to show the government exactly what we're doing and what our thinking is uh, around the medicine that we're doing. And from that has stemmed a, a larger uh, research project that we're going to be doing in the fall. And this last year, we got it approved through the uh, Nepal Health Research Council and, you know, our own local uh, um independent review boards, but what we, what we're trying to show, we're we're actually trying to establish a system of medicine in Nepal that falls under a, a, a world health organization program that's called lifestyle clinics. And there's several countries like Sri Lanka that have been able to radically reduce a lot of, uh, what are called NCDs or non-communicable disease, like diabetes and, and, uh, heart disease chronic pain, you know, uh, through these li- the system of lifestyle clinics. And so what we want to show is we want to show evidence that, number one, there's a, a huge need for uh, care in the, in the realm of, uh, of NCDs, and that we actually have a model which addresses these kinds of diseases very specifically. And we do it for very little money, like we've been able to run our project for less than $8 a visit. Uh, and, and, and so since we started in 2008, um, we've seen a little over 350,000 patients uh, in our clinic projects, and, uh, and, and we do this at an incredibly low cost. Uh, other models or other you know organizations that are operating in our district uh, run at more like somewhere between 30 to $40 a visit. Uh, and so I think that we have a very lightweight, sustainable model that, that is worth looking at.
1: Yeah. How is it that you managed to bring in this kind of care hmm. at this kind of a price?
2: You know, when I started the project, I didn't really... You know, we, we just went there to, you know, <laughs> I was just out of graduate school, and I just went to Nepal to just see what acupuncture could do. And, you know, and then after, we, we could kind of see, you know, acupuncture is really good at this part of this. And, and you know, so th- this this idea of an integrated care center sort of evolved over many years in Nepal. And, and so we didn't start with the actual vision that we have now. It sort of evolved over time. Um, and then, you know, we we gained a lot of partners along the way is, is that our goal has always been to work very closely with the government. And as we worked with other health officials, you know, we found other people that were doing similar things and we just sort of built the model around what was available and what, you know, and also what our community needs. And so we have a uh, uh, we have a committee in our in in our catchment area that's that's all local uh um, elders, and they sort of advise us as to what it is that they need and what they want us to be able to provide. So sometimes we we end up delivering services that weren't really on our radar originally. Like this year we're going to be installing a you know, an actual lab uh, on our compound. Uh, so that we can run some basic lab services there, and we've always had to, you know, send out to to, you know, get lab services. So anyway, the community is going to allocate some money to us to uh, basically facilitate the building and operation of the lab.
1: You know, it's it's so often the case with so many different kinds of projects or things that we do in life. Start off with something. Here's an idea. You take a couple of steps. You find out hey, I'm right about this, or this makes sense. And you find out a bunch of things that you're wrong about. And then you also find resources that you never knew that you had along the way. It sounds like one of the things that you're doing here is you're really connecting with the community and and, and listening to and bringing to the community what it says that it, it needs and wants.
2: That's the goal. Uh, you know, I mean, when we, we, we started our project a little closer into Kathmandu and... And basically where our clinic had originally been sort of got, you know, it basically got swallowed up by the expansion of the city. So what seemed kind of like a remote area when we began sort of became sort of a more urban center later. And so, you know, we wanted to move out into more rural areas. Uh, And when we went searching for a new home, what we found was that there was – You know, there was a lot of projects operating in Nepal or a lot of surgical teams coming in and doing services, a lot of a lot of uh, NGOs doing work out there. But they were they were really very haphazard and not very accountable to their their projects. And what we found is a lot of communities that just weren't that interested in having us come there because they'd had such bad experience with other NGOs And so, you know, you get these surgical teams that are like flying into Nepal on a Monday and then by Wednesday they're in the field and then they do, you know, 300 uh, glaucoma surgeries uh, on Thursday and then they fly back to their home countries on Friday. And there's like really nobody out there to do follow-up care, see if you got a bad outcome. And then, of course, if you did have a bad outcome, there's no accountability on the part of the uh, of the organization in the end. And so, you know, we could obviously see that this was a big problem and what we needed was something that was a little bit more sustainable that we could now, we could run the basic primary clinic uh, that was necessary for the pre-screening and the follow-up care. And then we could host other, you know, surgical teams or anybody to come in on top of our project to run these more specialty camps. In a more, you know, basically a a, a more uh, accountable way. So, yeah, I think that you know probably what's made us more sustainable and 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 really contributed to our success is our, our relationship with our community and uh, and and really our relationship with the government and and sort of our our governing authorities. Yeah, it
1: sounds like it really comes from that passion of yours, not just to climb mountains, but to be connected with the environment around it and the people around it and, and, and the life that evolves out around it. I'm, I'm curious, you know, we're we're living here in the United States. It's, uh, we've got our own healthcare issues. Is there anything that you guys are learning over there in this remote place in this whole completely different culture that could help us here in the States in terms of delivering better healthcare?
2: That's a pretty broad question. I think that, you know, like in in what I teach at at OCOM and what what I try to work with with students on is this idea of of trying to work in a more holistic fashion or try to see Chinese medicine outside the box. Chinese medicine is is a self-standing medicine. There's there's no, no, no doubt about it. And, you know, it's very effective and very useful but it, it's limited in our way that we can communicate with other providers or really help advocate for, for patients. And I think much of the, the, the very um, substantial medicine that we've done in Nepal applies to the way that medicine could be done in the U.S. is, is that one thing that acupuncturists get in the US that other physicians don't get in US is a lot of time with their patients. And so they see patients frequently and they, and they see them for a, a greater period of time. They've got their hands on their patients. And, and this gives a real great opportunity to do some very good primary care uh, kinds of ideas, but it, it only works if you're able to communicate these ideas to other, other physicians and other care facilities. And so I'm always encouraging students to kind of think about you need the language of Chinese medicine in the way that, you know, you think about your medicine. But you need the language of allopathic medicine, for lack of a better word, so that we can communicate with all all the entire medical field. And and so and, and even in communicating with our patients is, is that patients don't speak the language of Chinese medicine. And so. When we talk to patients, we should be talking to them in the language that they have, not in the language that we have. And maybe this is probably one of the best lessons that I've learned in Nepal is to that in order for medicine to be effective, you have to communicate in the language of your patient, which I can't use Chinese medicine metaphors. I can't even use Western medicine metaphors when I'm using when I'm talking to patients in Nepal, because they're illiterate. And so what do they understand? They understand the language of farming, uh, because that's what they do. And so what I have to do is I have to go out and see how they farm and see what they're doing. And, and really what I've learned about Chinese medicine is, is that it is also a metaphor about farming. And, uh, and, and so much of our Chinese medicine concepts of how we move things around is the way that that water is moved around in the fields, how you get water into a field, how you get water out of a field, basically the seasonality of, of growing uh, foods. And so it's very easy for me to convey ideas of Chinese medicine to farmers in, in Nepal because they, they understand what it means to live in the environment and interact with the environment.
1: Yeah. And you're using a language that they understand. This is, I think this is a, yeah, probably a challenge for any medical practitioner. I mean, even, even here in the States, if you go to an allopathic uh, doctor, they will often speak in very Latinized terms. It makes it hard to understand. You know, it's just my toe hurts. Speaking of language, how do you guys, I'm, I'm suspecting a lot of your volunteers don't speak Nepali and and I suspect there's probably dialects out there and all kinds of stuff. How do you guys work the language piece of it?
2: Yeah, well, that's been a major challenge right from the very beginning. And, uh, and of course, when we first began, we didn't really understand what we thought maybe we'll just show up and we can look at people's tongues and feel their pulses and, you know, we can do some medicine with that. But, Turns out you actually need to talk to people to find out what's wrong with them. <laughs> so what we, we, we came upon was that we needed some medical interpreters. And, and at first, what we had is we had some local kids that spoke English that helped us out. But over time, we, we developed a program in which we actually develop interpreters uh, that they have to basically be get a pseudo education into our medicine and all of medicine uh, in order to be able to communicate the kinds of ideas that we need. And there's sort of an art to working as an interpreter. And, and so we spent a lot of time try- cultivating a team of interpreters. So to date, we've trained pretty close to 50 medical interpreters. Many of them have gone on to other government jobs. A lot of them work for other NGOs now. Uh, but, even during the big earthquake uh, that happened in 2015, one of the ways that we were really able to contribute was to uh, give our staff of interpreters over to other emergency teams and other things that were other medical teams that were coming into the country that also needed this kind of support. So, yeah, it's a, it's always an ongoing project. We we don't develop this, this part of our program as sort of like you know, we train people and then they have to work for us. We don't try to hold on to them. So every year we we probably recruit maybe 30 or 40 different people to you know, come in and do some language training with us. And then a few of them end up working for us, but, you know, then they go on and do other things. And so we, we always have sort of a, a, a revolving door of new interpreters coming in. And any team that comes and works with us, we'll have a few senior interpreters that have been w- working with us for several years. And then there'll always be some that are just brand new and they, they vary in skill.
1: So you're also creating this job and economic opportunity for anyone who's got some English and really wants to take it up a level or two and, and be able to contribute. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow, that's great. Who comes to Nepal to work in your clinics?
2: I get volunteers from all over the world. So I'd, I've worked with acupuncturists uh, and, and we're not just limited to acupuncturists. We'll take anybody who wants to come and work in, in our environment. Um, I think that, you know, my project is, is really developed around the idea that acupuncturists are uniquely qualified to do this kind of primary work in the world. I think that the, the medicine was very developed for this. And the holistic way that that Chinese medicine looks at the body is is a very good jumping off point to do good good uh, primary medicine. And so the backbone of what we do in the clinic is is staffed by acupuncturists. But I've had chiropractors and physical therapists and nurse practitioners and allopaths and and a, a lot of different modalities come and work in the clinic. The, the, the one thing that when you do work in the, in the rural areas is, is that, anything that you do that is very resource intensive is is going to be very difficult. And so, you know, if, if you have a modality that is very dependent on a lot of labs and imaging and pharma and, and those kinds of things, it's going to be very difficult for that to be sustainable because it's going to be so expensive and, and unavailable to, a, to our uh, public. And so, what we need is a medicine that is very founded on really great observation skills and being able to do great clinical analysis in, in, in lieu of having other more high-tech uh, types of diagnostics available. And then your solutions to most of your problems have to be quite simple and inexpensive. Uh, and so the cost of things always is factoring in. And, and even in the way that we use herbs, or if we're trying to make a decision between herbs and pharma... You know, it's like sometimes I'd prefer to use the r- herbs, but the pharma is just so much less expensive and, uh, and more available to us uh, that, that that becomes the more wise decision for us to use. And so, you know, we just come at the, med- at the medicine in, in, in a much more pragmatic sort of way of saying that we, we have to get out of our own minds of saying that this is good medicine, that's bad medicine. There's many factors that go into making that decision. Yeah, it sounds like it. I'm a little curious. You you teach at Ocom.
1: I'm wondering how your time in Nepal, the medicine you do in Nepal, the influences that have shaped you from doing medicine, from building these clinics, everything you've done there. How does that affect your teaching of students here in the United States? I suspect it brings a, a particular point of view that you might not find in in most acupuncture
2: instructors. Yeah, I drive a lot of people crazy that way. Um, <laughs> really? How so? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I I think that there's some holes in the way that that we we train acupuncturists and and maybe Chinese medicine just has some paradigms that I, I think that could be improved upon. And and one of them is is our propensity to rely on subjective information, or we put so much emphasis on 10 question interviewing. You know, basically just sort of relying on patients to tell us whether or not they're getting better or not, or, or what is actually wrong with them in the first place. And, and even in the naming of a chief complaint, uh, I just say, you know, when I ask most students who makes the chief complaint, they always say the patient makes the chief complaint. And I, I'm like, do you think that your patient is actually qualified to tell you what the priority of their case is? And in Nepal, the answer is no, you're, you're, you know, it, that, like they don't even have names for the internal organs of their body. There's no different word for a tendon, a ligament, or or a vein, or a nerve. That's all one word in Nepali. And so it's my job to listen to the story and see all of the different symptoms and then, you know, tell the patient what I think that the priorities are. And I, I think the same is true in the West, is, is that You know, it's like we want to, we of course are listening to the patient and we're seeing what their priorities are, but we need to be looking at the entire picture of their case and then discuss with them what we think their priorities are and tell them what we think that we can do about that. We also need ways of looking at a case where we know whether or not a patient is getting better regardless of what they're saying, because, you know, like in Nepal, people are very polite. And so no one is ever going to tell me that they're not getting better. And, uh, and so patients come in and say, you know, if I just ask them, how's your pain? They're always going to tell me they're getting better. And so I need better tools of an analyzing if they're getting better or not. Are they getting better in the ways that I expect them to get better? And basically, am I just getting them better or not?
1: I've noticed a funny thing over the years. People will come in and I, I usually ask open-ended questions. How are you doing? How's the week been? You know, or how's the X, Y, Z? And they'll go, and sometimes I'll hear this. I'll go, you know, I think it's getting a little better. I have discovered that means one of two things. It means, just like you were saying, they're being polite. You know, they want to be a nice patient. They, you know, they want me to feel like a good doctor. Actually, nothing's changed, but they're being polite. Or the other one that sometimes happens is everything has completely changed and they've already forgotten they had the problem. There's this kind of amnesia that I see happen sometimes when something's not in your consciousness on a regular basis, you, you just forget that you had it. You're getting on with your life. And so it does raise the question for me as well, how do you know what's actually going on for your patients? So what are some of the things that you've come up with so that you don't have to listen to? Yeah, it. it I think it's a little bit better. What, what kinds of things are you looking at that let you know that?
2: That question is, you know, it's different for every patient what we're actually looking at, but- in general, we're looking. We're looking for actual signs of things. We're trying to reproduce symptoms in a way that we can understand them and measure them. And, and so anything that a patient is reporting to me, my first question is, is how can I analyze that symptom? How would I know if I got it better or not? And by challenging practitioners in our clinic, I've seen practitioners come up with amazingly creative ways of measuring all kinds of different symptoms. Uh, The bottom line is is that you have to put an emphasis on measurement and and reproduction of symptoms in order to do this. And so like, if you're just relying on your patient to tell you if they're getting better, we're we're gonna fail at this. Uh, And so our emphasis has to be on what can we see, what can we reproduce, what can we understand, if this was going to change, what would we see? How would we know? And uh, and and just apply all of that thinking a- along the way. So my my favorite story about how this, my first enlightenment on this concept was this young woman who had come into our clinic early on. Uh, in fact, this was our first year in Nepal, and uh, she was 32 years old, and she'd been paralyzed. Uh, you know, she had. Uh, she had a left-sided paralysis since she was 12 years old. So you just kind of look at the case and go, well, what, what is, you know, how does a a person that's 12 years old end up with uh, being paralyzed and us not being familiar with, you know, pediatric uh, febrile diseases we just didn't realize that this was an issue because we just don't see this in the West. And, but finally we can kind of concluded that she'd had typhoid fever and that this fever had left Mm. her stroked. And, uh, so anyway, I don't know what you learned in school, but what I learned in school was when it comes to paralysis, that you have to jump on this. And, and if you, and if you don't, you know, get right on it immediately, or within the first year, that you probably have very diminishing chances of of helping with paralysis. And this was twenty years old and and quite severe. And so, obviously, our prognosis was quite low that this could could change in any way. And uh, and so, at this time, we didn't have a system to get patients back to a single practitioner. We just did sort of a triage and. When patients came in, they just saw which available practitioner was there. And so we didn't always see the same person. But after a while, one of my colleagues came up and said, Hey, that patient that you were seeing with this that febrile stroke, she's not getting any better. And you know, we should consider releasing her. And I said, Great. When when I see her next time, I'll review her case and 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 see what I think about it. And so when she came in the next time, we had about 18 visits into her. And I interviewed her at length, asking, you know, about change, anything, are are there any changes to this, anything? And she just kept using the same word, which, which just meant nothing's changed. It's all the same. And even for 10 minutes after the visit, even while the needles are in, you know, any change in sensation, anything like this, you know, I kept looking for anything that she would give me that something had changed even temporarily. And she said, no, nothing's changed. And so I said, you know, I think that we told you from the beginning that we have very low chance of of helping with this, and and I don't think that you're responding. And so I don't think that you need to come back to the clinic anymore. And she immediately burst into tears, which confused me. And I looked at my interpreter, and then I asked, her, why, why are you crying? And And she said, well, you know, before I came in for treatment, I wasn't able to carry the water bucket, and now I can carry the water bucket. And in my mind, I was yeah. going, that yeah. would be a change, right?
1: <laughs> you think yeah. you'd notice.
2: But this, this was the limitation in language is what what she was saying is, is that I'm still paralyzed, you know, is, is that that this wasn't a change to her. Her condition was, is that she was still ill. And, and you know, and so the, the word change just didn't translate to her in the same way that it was for me. Mm. And so I said, show me and then you know she showed me her hand moving in a way and i was like and then i couldn't really recall because i hadn't been looking at how the hand had moved previously and i was like is this a change or is this not a change which just told us wake up you have to look you can't just ask and and so we did a lot better analysis of what she had moving and now when we thought that it was a potential that it could change we increased her frequency of treatment. And then very rapidly she started to gain movement in the hand and the and the foot. And and pretty soon I started trying to give her some dexterity exercises, you know, so that she could isolate finger movement. And she was having a very difficult time with that. And so I went to her well hand and had her try to do it on her well hand and and started going, like, huh, it's interesting because. Obviously, in Nepal, when you live in the rural village, hands were not made for playing piano. They were made for carrying water buckets. And so she really just didn't have very good dexterity, even on her well side. And so what I did is I went to work training the well side how to do this. And then the ill side learned it just as well. And by the time she was with us for one year at the clinic, her hand fully recovered. But this was a, you know, so this was a great case but it was a case that we came very close to releasing because we weren't looking for the evidence. We were just asking. It, about It involves evidence. a completely
1: different kind of clinical gaze and a whole different kind of thought process. Doesn't it? Yeah. That's that. Yeah. That's great. Correct. If people would like to come and, and volunteer, come to Nepal, work with you and learn some skills that they wouldn't necessarily learn in school as well. How do they go about doing that? How would they contact you and start this process?
2: So they, they can visit our website at Um, And we have two different programs that we run. So most of the year we run what are called uh, uh, third world medicine immersion programs. And these are where we assemble teams. Usually we have teams of six practitioners that work between two different clinic facilities. And these, uh, depending on the calendar, these last seven to nine weeks. And, uh, um, and these are clinical and training intensives where we have, we have experienced practitioners on the ground. We do a lot of training. We run a very busy clinic. Uh, usually our practitioners get somewhere in the neighborhood of about 600 to 700 patient touches in that, in that amount of time. And, you know, we basically teach them all of the skills that we know about doing uh, rural integrated care. And then we have another program that uh, we run during sort of our slower season, which is during the monsoon during the summer, which is is uh, limited to experienced practitioners, uh, people that have been practicing more than three years and and hopefully also have some uh, uh, travel experience under their belt. Great.
1: Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we wind this thing down?
2: I don't, I don't know if I have any great words of wisdom. Uh, you know, please uh, check out our project on our website. You can find us on Facebook. We, we like it if people follow our project. Uh, if you're an acupuncturist and you're in school, please consider coming and, and joining us uh, after you graduate. Uh, I think that we can, you know, anybody that joins us usually gains immense skill and, and, uh, and in, in participating in in our program. And, uh, and if you can't come follow us, uh, if you can uh, donate, uh, that would be great too. Uh, and, and of course you can donate through our website. Great. I'll
1: be sure we have all that on the show notes page so people can easily find it. Andrew, thank you so much for making the time today to, uh, share with us what you're doing in Nepal.
2: Yep, yeah, great. Thanks so much for having me.
1: I hope you enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture. If so, please take a moment, click on the iTunes review button and leave a review of the show and be sure to tune in again next week.